Hello, and you're very welcome to episode 141 of The Game Pit. And this is not Sean who usually introduces The Game Pit to you, it is Ronan. And today we are doing something slightly different. I am joined in The Game Pit by Eleanor. Hiya. And Rachel. Hello. And we have been playing some new releases that are either just out or are being released to Essen in the next couple of days. And we're going to give first impression reviews of nine of them in a very quick format. This is called our Glancing Blows format. I came up with a new name. Go me. He's so happy. Pretty wicked. (laughs) (laughs) Big smile on my face. Also, after we've done our nine reviews, you're going to get something unusual. There's an interview with Isaac Childress. Now, a friend of ours, his name is Chris O'Regan. He is the host of the Sausage Factory podcast, (laughs) which is a computer game podcast. But he went to PAX, I'm going to say East, I get my PAXs mixed up, and he was offered the chance to interview Isaac, which he was never going to turn down, because as well as being a huge computer gamer, he's a big board gamer as well. But it didn't really suit his own podcast. So he contacted us. So he contacted us and said he had this interview done with Isaac. It's done in a loud hall. So, but you can hear what they're saying more or less. But that's what's going to come after our reviews. And then I'll see you out at the end. And obviously this is dead on the eve of Essen. And we're all super excited. Rachel's coming for her first one. <laughs> Ellie's not coming this year. No, not this year. Mm. That's to disappoint the Game Pit fans. I have no gopher. <laughs> Rachel has assured me that she's not going to play gopher, that she's there to have fun. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> I'm relying on you to show me around. Not even bringing a suitcase. Nope. I can't even pack you for the games. <laughs> this is my Disappointing. Oh, unbelievable. I can't get good use out of her. Anyway, <laughs> I will somehow. <laughs> That is good podcasting, putting your time in. (laughs) (laughs) Verbal abuse only today, please. (laughs) Right, we're going to crack straight into these nine reviews. So we hope you enjoy them. And like I say, stick around for the Isaac Childress interview afterwards. So first one up is Taverns of Tiefenthal by Wolfgang Varsh. It's his follow-up more or less to The Quacks of Quedlinburg. And it's from Schmitzpiel and coming out from North Star Games very shortly in North America, which is why we brought it up here. It's had a sort of a staggered release where it was released in Germany. There are some English language copies, but not many. And now it's hit the UK shores a couple of weeks ago. And like I said, America soon. The theme is that each of you have got your own tavern that you're looking to upgrade and build and make more successful over the course of eight rounds. In there, you're going to be brewing beer. The way you do it is you've got a deck of cards and you flip cards over and they fill up a certain number of tables you have in your tavern. But amongst that, that's just the guests that fill up the tables. There are also helpers and you'll have brewers that help you brew beer. You'll have barbacks, you'll have extra servants and you'll have ways to manipulate your dice. Then everyone's going to draft dice from the middle as well as have their own color ones if they've got any servants. And from those, they're going to place them in various areas around their board looking to serve guests to brew beer and to make money. When you brew beer, that's going to allow you to attract more customers into your deck. It goes directly on top of your deck so you know you're getting them next turn. And they're all better than the ones that you start with, which take very low value dice to serve and give you low amounts of gold. But they do give you gold. And with that gold, you're going to be buying upgrades in two different ways. There are cards you can add to your deck, be it more tables so you can serve more guests, or be it more brewers to make you brew more beer or all the things that I just said that you can get to manipulate dice and and get your own kind of dice. You can buy them and add them to your deck. Also, you can spend money 
on upgrading your own tavern. Now, it, there's lots of different areas. There's about eight or nine. And when you upgrade them, you pay amount of money. You can sacrifice servants. Let's not say sacrifice. You can promote, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> servants. Sacrifice. <laughs> in order to make that cheaper. But every time you do it, you take a special card called a noble into your deck, which is a form of guest, but it's worth 10 points. Because all these upgrades that you've brought in your deck, all these customers, and especially these nobles, are all worth points to you. And that's all that's going to score you at the end of the game. There's also a monastery track which you can go around for little bonuses. It's kind of like a throwaway add-on mechanism. So you're drafting dice, you're placing them on your board, you're building up a deck, and you're upgrading your tavern. It's a game that starts very tight in the beginning, and you're just making a couple of gold, and you're thinking, how am I ever going to get enough money to do anything here, or enough beer to attract these nobles in? But it certainly accelerates over the course of the eight rounds. Ellie, on our first play, your thoughts on Taverns of Tiefenthal? Well, I'm a huge deck building fan. I like building a deck and building up what I can do. And what you said, as the game accelerates, that's part of the whole deck building aspect. And the fact that you have to get two different currencies working in order to score points and bring more people in and upgrade, it's really interesting. I actually really enjoyed it. I loved the puzzle-like nature of the board where you can flip the different things and you can see that it's it's already planned for expansions or for the future. Let's be clear here, we played the base game. So <laughs> I'm very sure that there are other options that were going to make it more complicated and more difficult and, and, you know, to keep the interest going, which I actually thought was a great planning for the future. I also actually like the graphics as well. Um, not to mention the cute little dog and cat. <laughs> you knew that was going to be in there. And the cat to a board and Rachel's happy. So the game comes as a base game, but there are four extra modules in there. And as Rachel was saying, the components are set up. So there's gaps and places and the, the main part of your bar actually flips over to open up to become another track. And you add those in and they build on each other. They're not like you add B or you add E or you add... When you add in number two, after that you add in number three. And so it grows in complexity. Which is why this is very much a glancing blow review yeah. because we just did the base set. Now, one question for you guys is, I thought there wasn't much interaction in the game. I was doing my own thing. You were doing your own thing. The only real interaction came from the draft off the dice. And even that was only a pool of four. So as it comes around, it's not like you're doing a massive amount of interacting there. I totally agree. And I kind of feel like there was maybe, maybe it was because we played it and we didn't play very well. There was an imbalance in the value of dice. So we were all trying to take low value dice, like one and two, because we had our base customers coming out and there wasn't much left to do afterwards. I actually enjoyed that aspect. Of <laughs> I quite I like working on my own. <laughs> yeah. But you Honey, did. We're talking about the board game. <laughs> you did sometimes look at what other people were going to want and go, well, I don't really care which of those two dice I want. She wants that dice. I'll take that. So That's you did have. You did have a little bit of that. <laughs> I also liked the. I know you. I liked that you could actually use the beer or the money because I felt like you either went with the money or with the beer, but both ways allowed you to get more aristocrats in, which I thought was quite good. Yeah, because if you got a certain amount of beer, I think it was nine beer at once, the most expensive guest would be eight beer that would give you most money. But if you had nine beers, you can get a noble in, which would give you the 10 points in your deck, but they would only ever give you two money back. Yeah. So the noble's not generating. So you're, I think you're right. If you went for heavy beer... Mmm, heavy beer. If you, <laughs> <laughs> if you went for heavy beer, then you're not going to be making as much money, you're not going to be upgrading, and you're not going to get them that way. So, yeah, and thoughts to finalise on Tavern, or not really, to start off our journey in Taverns of Teeth and Toll. I thought it was really interesting. 
I had no idea how other people were doing. That was at yeah, the end. It was, was really yeah. <laughs> at the end. It was really who the hell scored the points and where the hell did they come from? <laughs> that was um, that was interesting. But I actually really enjoyed it. I think it's a good medium weight game. I think we can all rejoice in the fact that King of Barbacks won in the end. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with Rachel. I definitely liked it. I would definitely play it again now that I know what kind of engine I'm supposed to be building instead of just sort you of taking random things. You were doing so well. Things. You <laughs> were flipping so many things. I think you were looking for a longer game. If it was yeah. a longer game, you would have been amazing. There's a pattern in these games I'm looking through of you <laughs> seeming like you're playing really well, Ellie, and until we get to scoring. Seems like a vital bit to miss out on. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to be flamboyant, not actually win. She okay. sets up for the long term. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's very obviously in first place. It's hard to judge how long a game is and when to really go for the kill and get the points. I enjoyed it. I couldn't see the base game sticking around for long because I can't see that we play it massively differently. I think three or four games. If there was no more in that box, then I'd be thinking it's a bit limited. With the promise of the modules, it's a bit of a suck it and see. We're going to have to wait explore those go through and when we've added all four of them then have a look at what the whole final product is i think at the very least they've given you value in the fact that you've at least got that journey to explore those modules so you're going to get several plays yeah, out of it I'm quite excited to try it quite excited i like that <laughs> i am as well yeah just agreeing with rachel today yeah i'm excited to see what expansions they come out with as well if they are going to marvelous we're going to move on to a game that's going to debut tomorrow as you hear this <laughs> at essen it is Castello Mathoni from Leo Colavini and Mandu Games. And Castello Mathoni is an island in the Mediterranean which the Venetian merchants wanted to set up as sort of a waypoint as a trading station on their way across to Constantinople for their trading and spices and what have you. Anyway, we are those Venetian merchants and we're turning up and we are claiming land and building towers and building houses and making villas and trying to make a load of money and control some of the land because land and money is points at the end of the game. What you're actually doing mechanically is you'll have a hand of five cards and they are linked to the six different terrains on the board. On your turn, you're going to play two cards. Now, you can play a card just to make a little bit of money if it's a market card or if there are six markets on, you can unlock them by having them. Anyway, you can make a bit of money by playing a card sometimes. But mostly what you're going to be doing is putting down a wall. Now, the board is split into triangular spaces. When you put a wall down, you must put one of your own houses on one side and someone else's house on the other side of the wall. Where it starts getting interesting is when you completely surround an area you make a domain when you first make a domain it doesn't matter whose houses are in there or any other infrastructure if you make it if you put the wall down it becomes yours you must pay the bank for the land that you've just surrounded and then you must pay everyone else for the houses that are trapped inside this domain and coins are all worth points at the end of the game so that's part of the judgment but the fact is that every bit of land that you control in the game is worth three points so paying that one to other people is worth it for you however when a domain is formed, you can annex into adjacent domains, so they're not completely secure. When someone tries to annex your domain, though, they must pay you two for every bit of land that's in there and for the houses that are in there. And when sets of three houses get together, they become villas, and that costs them five money rather than three. So you're looking to build up a situation. Possibly you might be trying to lure people in to annex your domains in order to give you their money so you can do something else with it and chain off each other and make 
make massive areas like this. <laughs> like, I was there for two space areas, and you had a 10 and 11 Everyone. going on there. Uh, we don't talk about winners around here. <laughs> the only winner is fun. So at the end of the game, and you, you pull out between 30 and 36 walls over the course of it, depending upon player count, it's really quick. It really, I was trying to, I thought it was from having like learned it, that you're not going to surround much of this board. But at the end of the game anyway, you get points for the domains you control, points for your coins, you get points for having the biggest area, not me. You get, what else do you get points for? Money. Yeah. <laughs> so money and land, basically, Castello yeah. Mathoni. It's a very quick game and it plays very quickly and turns are very quick and you end up not having used as much of that board as you think you will. Our objectives, that's why I was talking about the amount of board. Everyone gets three sets of terrain and you score an extra point for each piece of land you control that matches one of the three sets of terrain you've got in your objective card at the beginning of the game. <gasps> Stop talking, Ronan and Rachel take over. I actually enjoyed this. I thought it was a nice, slick, enjoyable game, but... It felt like it was over before it even started. Yeah. It was so quick. It really was. <laughs> I was just, no, I've just started. Where's it all gone? <laughs> it, it looks like a big pile of walls until you start building them. There's a very small pile of walls. Yeah, I agree with Rachel. It was definitely over before it began. It was another one of those games that I looked like I was doing well because I was having fun annexing into other people's areas. Just you over. stole my largest area. <laughs> I did. 10, 11. The funniest bit about that was, in order for Ellie to steal the largest area from Rachel, she had to annex one of mine and she paid me more money for to annex it than I was going to score at the end of it. So I was wetting myself laughing. That's what I was about to say. And that was definitely part of what you were trying to do. I was trying to lure people in because if you've got three spaces and a villa in there, They'll give you that's 11 money where you'd only score nine points at the end anyway. And obviously you're taking that money directly from them as well, which can set up your own moves later on. So I, I thought it was interesting that sometimes you want to set up small areas as long as you can get a villa in there because then the villa will really boost the value of it. I love that you paid for the control and I love that the money at the end equals points because a lot of games you're spending the whole game trying to get money to do things but the money itself isn't worth anything yeah, at the end whereas this kind of or something, flipped yeah. this over and actually the money was just as valuable as, as the land in many respects. Um, and it also gave you a bit of a catch-up mechanism so if someone's going in to take all the bits of all that hard work you've done putting all those things down and all those walls down if someone comes in you're actually getting some benefit from them actually doing that it was the bit that felt most thematic as well the fact that you're supposed to be merchants and in the end the way that money changed hands was actually and, and when someone bought something from you opened up opportunities elsewhere it's not a thematic game but that sort of <laughs> transactional no it's not <laughs> laughing at me Thanks for the obvious. <laughs> but the transactional nature of those exchanges of lands, that was the bit hint that I got that, oh, it feels a bit merchanty, not that I've ever been a merchant. But, I definitely know. agree, because I forgot. I think that was what I did. I forgot that my actions have repercussions for other people. <laughs> I forgot that, yeah, I am paying other people. I'm gaining this land, but I'm also paying dad money, and I'm paying Rachel money, and... Yeah, I just forgot that I was helping you by building my own empire. Yeah, you can go for a land grab because it seems most obvious. Exactly. I think my only slight negative was the graphics. Well, apart from it being so short, (laughs) (laughs) uh, was the graphics. They weren't very exciting. They weren't great. But you know what? It didn't need to be for this game. I didn't mind them. They were functional. nothing too exciting. I think the walls, yeah, maybe they look a little bit 10 years ago, but... Yeah, they're white rather than grey and... Yeah, they do the job. Yeah. yeah. They're not... They're not you're they're not, not going to write home about they're them. They're not yet. an eyesore. No, but it's, it's a nice, quick, comfortable game. Really quick. Really, really quick. quick. <laughs> Too damn quick. <laughs> so, 
we're going to silence Ellie for the first time in 16 years now for a couple of minutes <laughs> because she hasn't played the next game, but Rachel and I have. It's Barrage from Cranio Creations. It's the heavier Euro game in which you're looking to control the flow of water through a landscape of three different tiers. And in controlling that water, you're looking to generate power. The main mechanism is worker placement. Now you can put them on your own area in order to build infrastructure on the board. In order to build infrastructure, you choose from a set of tiles, you've got one of each. And if you're playing the easy version, you've got a wild. If you're playing the advanced version, you can actually buy more versions in. But anyway, you're choosing what you're gonna build and you put it into this six segmented wheel. Then in that segment of the wheel, you put a certain amount of mixers or diggers, depending upon what you're building, and you spin that wheel round. And those mixers or diggers will not be available to you until you spun that wheel all the way round again by continuing to build or take other actions in the game. Rachel's mouthing words to me, distracting me from my rules explanation. <laughs> so frustrating, the wheel! It's amazing. <laughs> So, what can you build? You can build dams in order to control the flow of the water. You can build power plants, which you're going to need to get water to in order to generate power, in order to generate your whole scoring. Or you can build conduits, which is how you get the water from the dams to the correct power plants in order to run the whole thing. In terms of worker placement, apart from building in your own area, there's also a central board you can place them onto where you're actually going to block people out genuinely. So, First thing you do is you can run. If you can take water that either you control or is behind a neutral dam, because there are three neutral dams put into play at the beginning of the game, and you can go through anyone's conduit. If you use someone else's, you have to pay them. They get a, a bit of money and a couple of points, not much. And it has to go to your power plant though, and then you generate your power plant. Now, the size of the conduit is gonna affect how much power you generate and how many drops you've taken out of the dam. Dams can be built with extensions on top of them and they can hold to a maximum of three drops. So you can have a maximum of three times the capacity of the conduit into your power plant to generate lots of power at once. And what space you grab on that central worker placement board will give you a bonus or malice on that power. When the water does move, the water drops actually flow across the map through the conduit to the power plant and fall down to the next dam. So you can try and keep control of it like that or it might go to someone else and give them opportunities to make power. Now, when you make power, you're keeping track of it each round, but also you start with a contract, you can get contracts during the course of the game and there are big national contracts. And if you've generated enough power, you can fulfill those contracts and get bonuses in terms of money, in terms of anything, <laughs> mixers, diggers, Buildings. more contracts, all sorts, yeah. yeah. Anything that you can get in the game, you can get via contracts. So more worker placement spots, obviously you can take contracts in order to set yourself up. They come in three different tiers, depending on how ambitious you are and your power generation. You can get more machinery, these diggers and mixers, to help you build more often. You can get spanners from the garage and they will help you push around your wheel in order to get back that segment tile and the machinery that you've used to dig. And you can get some money from the bank because things cost money, specifically going to particular worker placement spaces. At the end of each round, you're going to check and see how much power you've generated. There's a goal of power that you're trying to get to. If you haven't generated much at all, then you're not going to score because each round has got bonus scoring. So it might be four points for every dam you've built. But if you haven't reached far enough along the track, you're going to not score that complete total. You're going to get a little bit taken off it because you haven't, yeah, basically looking to generate power. And whoever generates more power is going to get bonus in points as well. Oh, then everything resets, including the power you've generated. So you have to do it again. You have, you're setting yourself every single round and water drops down and more water becomes available. That's another thing you do on the worker placement board. You can make more water available. <laughs> make it rain. <laughs> ching, ching, ching. So 
Rachel, this is the heaviest game we're going to talk about today. We've both played it a couple of times. I'm going to ask you about the flow of the game and whether the theme ties into that flow. And yes, I'm using the word flow deliberately. <laughs> I love this game. I thought it was very pretty from the pieces to the idea and how it all fits together into something that makes a lot of sense to me. I love the mechanisms. I feel the wheel itself needed some work because... You turn it and not necessarily all the pieces and things like the, go with the it. Physical but components. in terms of the graphics and playing the game, I thought it was really good fun. So you're talking about the physical components here. So you're liking the look of it because this is a very controversial game, <laughs> as has been discussed. It was kickstarted by Cranio with promises of being a revolution in board game components. And they were a revolution of sorts in the wrong way. <laughs> And the wheel is not great. No, no. I mean, I don't have those expectations. I've just got the game and played it and very much enjoyed it. The wheel, as I said, is a little bit broken. But I love the mechanism of it. Yeah, the, the actual fact that you're putting them in, you know when you're investing in the machinery, it's going to take ages to get back. So frustrating! <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, there are ways to mitigate. If you take contracts with lots of spanners on there, then you know that you're going to be able... Or if you have something cheap you can build, so you know we'll push it around. You can try and control it, but it can be... how You definitely, a dozen times a game, you're going to go, oh, I can build that. Oh, I can't. I forgot. I can, I can build that. No, no, that's, no, that's four spanners away. I can't do that. And there's definitely a game where you make plans in your head and you get six stages into your plan and you realise, I can't do that. What am I just spent ten minutes wasting my time thinking about that for? So I'm here in a love-hate relationship yeah. with this magic world. <laughs> All good, heavier games. Yeah. The water drops themselves, just for the last component issue, they're interesting. They're so pretty. They're difficult to move, but they're so pretty. There you go. <laughs> the yin and yang. They're flat on one side, so they're quite hard to pick up, but they do look like water drops. They look are. amazing. Okay. I like bling. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Seeing your arm candy. The, <laughs> the meanness in the game, because you can really be mean to each other. You, really you can, can. scupper each other's plans. You can build a dam above someone else's dam to stop them getting water. You can siphon water away from them. It takes a while, but you certainly can. You can build the conduit that they then have to pay you to use all the time. Yes. In a Euro, generally that sort of meanness can be seen as very frustrating to people when you break the links in their chain. In this one, what were your thoughts? In this game, you're expecting it. You have to do it. But the game pushes you to actually do it. It pushes you to build dams, to build conduits, to get points on the power track. So you have to actually do it. And it's a little bit frustrating at times. And you're like, no, Puria, you evil boy. He's often Puria. Because he's the one who's just so points driven on it. And he, he doesn't care who he messes around with to get there. He's a heartless points machine. <laughs> he's a Euro robot of hell. <laughs> He really is, but... I hope he's listening. <laughs> but you understand it and it makes sense, so you, you can't take it too personally. Yes, it's frustrating. Yes, when someone puts a dam up there for no reason, it's not going to achieve anything. In fact, it's going to hurt him as much as it hurts you. <laughs> then you can be a little bit frustrated. Yes, we all remember that mountain <laughs> dam career that you threw in and giggled. <laughs> It was a giggle that really did it. Wasn't it? I can hear the giggle you're thinking of. So there are special abilities. Are we ever going to remember to use them, Rachel, in any game? Because each player is a nation, and that gives you an ability. And also, you get a CEO, and you get a suggested setup for your first game. And after that, you should draft them. But 
for some reason, while we're thinking about the main mechanism, I keep forgetting about the fact that I've got this thing that makes the game easier. I think it's because you're thinking so much about the game itself. Once we've done it, you're going to start thinking about those characters as well and actually using them a bit more. Yeah, my brain can't take it all in at once. (laughs) We played it once and then uh, I suggested, well, should we play the advanced game? And it was literally 10 days after we played the first time and we looked at each other and went, no. (laughs) I can't really remember because there's a pattern to it. And the first time I played, I was trying to trap water further up the mountain and that didn't work because you have to kind of start from the bottom unless you know the game very well and see an exploit start from the bottom and build your way up start with the cheap things a sort of a yeah i was going to say the the worst thing about the game is if you don't do any power generation in the first round or you don't set yourself up properly in the first round then you are trying to catch up the rest of the game yeah and if you that scored really hard. <laughs> less than zero points by the time you get three <laughs> rounds in after five ronan is there any chance you're going to win that game ronan you're just laughing at me. You caught up very well. Yeah, I didn't, did I? <laughs> okay. So, Barrage. I think you're on half of Puria's points. Yeah, thanks. Barrage. <laughs> oh. Final thoughts on it? I really enjoyed it. I would happily play it again. Yeah, I'm Several looking Several times over. It. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been, gameplay-wise, it's been a big hit. Really looking forward to playing it again. Certainly got no chance of getting bored of it yet. The advanced game to come. There's an expansion available, which maybe we'll look into to see what that adds as well. So there's lots to explore in there. But even in the base game, I think there's several plays in it for us. Just clever. Really well set up. Really good game. Okay. Next one is almost the polar opposite. It's Kauai. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely couldn't be more different. (laughs) It's from Helvetik. It's a deck of cards. Now, everyone's first of all going to get dealt out what their favourite flavour and shape of ice cream is for this particular mm. round. <laughs> and there's five flavours and there's five shapes. And then everyone gets dealt out a roughly equals deck of cards. And then on the turn, you take the top card and you flip it away from you so it goes face up on the table and everyone can see what you flipped. And that just carries on around. And everyone's flipping around, creating a pile of cards in front of them or a fan of cards in front of them. At any point, a player can use one of their two claim tokens and say, Kawaii! And they can claim the pile of cards, not even coordinated, I just knew you'd do it. Uh, Claim the pile of cards in front of themselves or any other player. And that goes then into your score pile. If they've claimed themselves, then their token goes completely out of the game. If they claim another player, the other player takes that claim token, giving them more chance to grab more piles of cards. You can do this at any point. You can do it mid-kawaii. Quite often, kawaii swaps happen. We go, kawaii, 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 kawaii. <laughs> what? There's too many kawaiis going on. And as simple as that, when we get through the whole deck of cards, you turn them over, you score one point for each card you got that's your own shape, one point for each card you got that's your own flavour, two, obviously, if it matches both. There's two cards that will match exactly in the whole deck. And you get one point for any cherries you've collected, random cards in there, minus one point for each closed shop you've collected, unless you collect all three, Ellie, mistress <laughs> of closed shops, and score three points Just don't like to work. for that. Now, Helvetique have got three small card games coming out at this Essen. The reason I chose Kauai is because the one that I enjoyed the most. But how about you guys? I definitely thought it was super cute. It was Kauai. They stuck to that. Definitely aimed at a younger audience, but it's good for teaching set collection and building that up. 
and um, you definitely have to think about what you're picking up so if you pick up the close signs and you're not going to get the rest of them you are getting minus points you definitely have to think about and do the adding up as to which pile would be the most beneficial for you and just count up the different I very rarely do that I just get nervous <laughs> when they get a bit bigger and go well that'll be worth some points <laughs> Yeah, if your if your cards aren't coming up, you go ah ah. Okay, I'll just go for that one. <laughs> it's when three, like people draw three cards around the table, and each one of them is your colour, oh, and then they go, and you're oh. like, well, why are my colour spread out so much? And then you're waiting for it to build up, and then someone takes it, and you're like, oh. You can see like three of the same shaper in that pile. You're like, so I take it for a point, or they're gonna get yeah. three points. Oh. <laughs> Super quick. Really good yeah. fun family You get fun. to three rounds of it. You're supposed to win three rounds. The scoring is always quite close. Yeah, you know, always. it's 10, 11, Nines 9 tens, wins. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, right? Family fun, especially with younger kids. Yeah. And off the Helvetic games, like I said, this is one I'd be happy to play with younger kids because it's fun, because it's funny, because it's interactive, because people are doing things, there's actions in it, everyone's laughing at each other. And it's really cute images. The images are very, very cutesy which appeals to, to kids. Yeah, I needed to ask you guys, because I'm dead inside about the whole kawaii appeal, <laughs> because it's just eyes on ice creams, and that really has zero impact on me. But I'm getting that apparently it works. It's really cute. Look at them. They all have like little personalities. I had, played it. I had played it with gamers, and no one had mentioned the artwork. I got it out in front of Ellie and Caitlin, and they both went, it is kawaii! Oh! I was like, I did not understand. <laughs> I have to say, about three rounds through, it was easy to forget what ice cream you had and what flavour you had. <laughs> and you'd pick up the wrong pile, and then you'd flip it at the end, and you'd go, oh, shoot, I'd be collecting where, the wrong thing. That's where the kids start catching us up. Because we just like, oh, I'm sure it was green. What colour am I? Put was me I, to bed, Ellie. Was I raspberry or strawberry? <laughs> oh, man, the chocolate and the whatever it was, I just chocolate got so messed up. You went... Wait, which one's this? <laughs> <laughs> which messed up Caitlin because she was collecting the colour that I was collecting, which was... Yeah, so no. you're blocking other things. Yeah, basically having senior moments. <laughs> so it's funny, it's fun. If you're going to look for one of those Helvetic ones for for younger family members or just to chuck out, you know, at, where you're waiting for a meal at a restaurant or something, maybe at a gelato shop. Oh, Ooh. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, Kawaii is, is, is a good crack. Okay, we're going to move on to another Mandu Games game. It's Queens. In Queens, there is a grid of flower tiles laid out with a garden that moves around the outside. On your turn, you're going to choose to take one, two, or three of these flower tiles. Now, from where the gardener is, that column will row, and the gardener will then move that number of spaces along in a clockwise direction. When you're taking these flower tiles, some of them have bees on. If you take a bee, you can only take one tile. If you take two tiles, they can be two the same color, but no bees. If you take three tiles, there must be three different colors, but again, no bees. However many tiles you take, you're gonna play them onto polyominoes in front of you or put them into your reserve. The polyomino, you start with one and you're gonna lay out these flowers and nothing's gonna happen until you fill your first polyomino up. Then each group of flowers is gonna score for every flower of that color in the group. You're then gonna choose another tile to bring out and add in adjacent some way to your first tile. And then you can carry on collecting flowers. And when you complete your second tile, you're then gonna again score for your groups of flowers, but only the ones that you've added to 
in this turn with it have got at least two or more in them. So if I had a group of three blues on my first tile and I was able to put two more adjacent blues, I'd then score five points for that lot. And on my third tile, if I added more blues, that it would all add up again. I could score eight points for that blues and what have you. Now, you're also going to be looking to score in each of the different five colours because you get a diversity bonus for doing that. The first person to do it gets a 10-point token and then subsequently onwards you get fewer points for having done it. At the end of the game, which is going to happen when someone has filled up five polyominoes though, you've got hives. Now hives can get placed instead of a flower tile and at the end you're going to score one point for every bee that's adjacent in, and that's all eight spaces around any hive and some of the flower tiles can have up to three bees on them. So you could look to that as some of your bonus scoring. The final thing is that if a tile's got one bee on it, it's a queen tile. And when you take that queen tile, you can swap it in with any other tile on your board in order to adjust your shapes and make things work slightly better for you. From the same company as Castello Mathoni, we said Castello Mathoni was really quick. This was mm, same time frame, maybe even quicker. I'd say yeah, the same. same time frame. Okay. And hit me. Queens, it looks nice, it's very bright, it's very colourful, it's got a lovely theme on it. I like puzzles. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> it was fun, it was fun, it was cute. As I said, I like trying to puzzle things into place and uh, making it the most efficient way possible. <laughs> so yeah, I did enjoy it a lot. How many games of the Patchwork app have you got? Mm. No? <laughs> did you say 300 in moan language there? <laughs> Yeah, definitely creating the chains to score more points again. And also the tile gaining rules, where you can only pick up specific tiles at a time, they stop people from just dominating single colours and creating huge things. You had to actually make conscious decisions about where you were going, who wanted what after you, and where the, where the gardener would be moving. How much were you considering what the next person along was collecting, and therefore how far you'd move the gardener? A bit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's true and it, it, that's funny because it lends itself to it because often in these games in the first play you'll just play your own board and not really care but in this one I did find myself looking across going oh well he's after blues is she I ain't moving it do <laughs> whatever I have to take I'll make it work but you're definitely not getting that oh definitely. yeah look he wants, he wants uh, he's going to be picking up one of those uh, puzzle pieces so you know what <laughs> what does anyone I'll try and make sure that I don't uh, yeah. don't move it along enough that it will get get her anything and then it will get me something that I want afterwards definitely <laughs> mean mean people I think it took me about two rounds to figure that out after Rachel had a huge score or something and I went oh so I should be looking at what other people are doing and then I started so it's your own puzzle that you're doing it's got physical appeal there is interaction because you're definitely setting up the next person along Point scoring, the way that it scores for those groups and the hives, did it all make sense? Was it all... It did, but I don't feel like the bees scored enough. Given that the game was called Queens, I felt like you were sacrificing to pick up bees, but the bees only scored at the end, only if they were in the right place. And I feel like they needed to be a stronger scoring on the bees. They need to be, did they? (laughs) They needed so to be queen, be queen. <laughs> queen. I felt like definitely where you placed your hives as well was very important. The way you would get your bees around that was, it was quite difficult. What I found was because you're not putting out that many tiles, your hive would have to go on early in order to make that 
production, you know. But but what you really want to do to score points is get big areas of flowers. Yeah. Because yeah. you consistently get those yeah. points. Yeah. Because then every time you add on to it, you're going to score lots of points. Yeah, because you didn't have any real any bees really at the end, and Ellie had loads. loads. <laughs> And I had in the middle, but you score, you won at the end. Another game that Ellie played looked like she played well. <laughs> <It did. laughs> so great at just fooling you all. Yeah, I think either either the bees need to score higher, or you need to be able to pick up bees in in two. You know, because you could yeah, only, yeah, you, you could only pick ones. up one if you were picking up a bee one. Whereas maybe if you had a queen bee, you could pick up two or something. Yeah, I don't it, know. it impacts directly on your other scoring. So to go for it impacts directly on sort of what you see as the main scoring. Yeah. yeah, I understand what you're saying. I did find it to be a very pleasant game. Though. Oh, it was really good fun. Yeah. Really good fun. It just it just felt like that was that tiny bit you to make just, it perfect. You're going to house rule it at some point. You're getting into <laughs> game design. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> Next year we'll be going to S&K in your prototype. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I've made this game about bees and flowers. <laughs> it looks very similar to this theme. <laughs> Well, I don't think we should get into games that are very similar to other games, but that's coming up. <laughs> mm, anyway, but not right now, because right now we're going to go on to Deckscape Curse of the Sphinx from DV Jockey. Now, Deckscape is a whole line of games, and there are different themes on them, and this is the latest one coming out at this spiel. It's an escape room just purely as a card game. comes in a very small box. In this case, you are trapped in a pyramid, and you've got to get out before the mummy gets you. That's not any spoilers. You don't destroy anything in the course of the game. You simply pull out a deck of cards, you flip them over, you follow the instructions. You're going to have to work your way through particular piles of cards in order to be able to move onwards by solving your typical escape room, number, spatial, manipulating things, using your brain puzzles in order to solve where you go next. The game punishes you for making mistakes in that the mummy comes after you and then after about the time it starts eating your face not quite <laughs> but that was scary it starts eating up your time and basically you'll get a score at the end depending upon how many mistakes you made and how close you let the mummy get to you so very close by the way <laughs> i think we did actually get eaten at one point i felt a bit sad about the mummy being by itself i can't play the escape room with us yeah, I think that was a lack of patience more than anything else. <laughs> right, we have played a few escape room games. One of the things that I think this one did well to some degree was it gave you multiple decks to look at at once. So that around the table we can take different puzzles and look at them and work on them and we're not all sitting there with really two people doing a puzzle and the other two doing their nails while they wait to actually get <laughs> have a look at the cards. Because the cards are so small you can't all do the same puzzle at once. I feel like that is usually an issue with small box escape room games, but with this one it was like having a big escape room game in a small box, which was really nice. Yeah, that was good. And in its family, because of that, it's more family focused because, you know, the, the young ones that usually get elbowed out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> by Rachel. <laughs> Clarify by Rachel. Okay, <laughs> to actually look at some cards and input. I like you didn't defend yourself. <laughs> Just wasn't worth it. <laughs> right. The flip side of that is that you actually, in order to solve certain puzzles, had to know everything that was going on with each deck. And you had to be aware that someone else had uncovered this in that way. And when they opened that jar, something came out. And then that for that links to this other thing back there. That So the decks actually interacted with each other, which was clever. But I 
guess I wish that we had been more aware of that because sometimes we were making mistakes without because I had not seen a card that someone else had solved the puzzle off. They were like, this is solved, throw those away, take the next card, but actually things on cards that have been solved were pertinent sometimes to how to move on. Now, I know this is funny. Maybe we needed to talk more. <laughs> <laughs> we're all sitting out in our own Me and my own Should we go back to Taverns of Teeth and Tell? I like being left alone. Should we go back to Queens? I, I like puzzles. I said it was funny. I acknowledged it. <laughs> okay. The fact that it's small scale makes it very portable. You can take it anywhere, get it out and play it. You're not worried about having stuff all over base and cutting things up and, and twisting things and standing on your head. But... <laughs> Did it make some of the puzzles a little spatially fiddly because you're dealing with very small things? Or did you think that or not, basically? We had one where we had to use cards in a certain way to see a, to see a different part of the riddle. I felt that that kind of did get fiddly, but I think that comes with the territory and it wasn't really an issue so much as just a thing. Yeah, and it wasn't something like you needed a lot of space for. You could still do it in on a table away in a hotel somewhere. It's just small things scare me, so I, get <laughs> I couldn't do that thing to lay them out properly. Right, Deckscape in comparison to other escape room games we've played, because we we do like the genre, we do enjoy them. I get a little bit frustrated sometimes, I'm a bit impatient, which is why we got eaten by the mummy, because I'm like, oh, whatever, let's move on. You should probably ignore me more. In comparison to others, where's it sitting? High, medium, low? Thoughts? I would say medium. And this is only because there were a couple of answers that I thought were a little bit obscure or weren't completely logical to me. But apart from that, I thought it was, you know, a good, normal, good fun escape room. And and we played some very good ones out there. Definitely, that was what I was about to say. There were some puzzles where the answers were quite ambiguous. Like we had an answer that should have been valid, but it wasn't the specific one they wanted and we got punished for it. You're still upset about that beat pattern, aren't you? I am, yeah, <laughs> It was really obvious in the end, wasn't it? Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, the answers were valid. We were correct, but it wasn't the specific one that they wanted. But again, There was one where there was the shape of something, and the only difference was the two colours, and they were very similar colours. Yeah. And that was one where I was like, oh, yeah, okay, when you get the answer you go okay i can now see that that is two percent different to the answer that we use <laughs> but i'm not sure that two percent was enough but i think that's just part of, of yeah it's yeah. part of escape room games mm-hmm. that sometimes you're just that so close to the answer that you can't quite nudge across and again i'm not willing to wait 10 minutes for us to go oh i know i'm like right let's just move on this is <laughs> hence, hence the mummy face eating <laughs> i agree a medium tier escape room game jolly lovely so, also from DV Jockey, this is the start of a new line of games for them. This is Deck Detective, which sounds a lot like Deckscape, but is different because in <laughs> Deck Detective, you're trying to solve a mystery rather than escape a particular place. This one is called Bloody Red Roses, and it is the same thing in which it comes in a small box. You pull out a deck of cards and you start flipping them over and you just follow the instructions. There's no rule book, anything. In this case, you're going to find out that there's a dead Count, Count Ferdinand Tudor. Interesting name choice. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, been found in the end of the 19th century in their garden, dead by the visiting Duke of York. 
In this, you're actually gonna put out cards and set up the scene by putting cards into the box, which sets them standing vertically where you can see the front of the house, the body, and a few things that are clues and the area around and the garden. And there's actually things on the back as well. You can spin around and have a look at it and pick it up. And that is part of the selling point of Deck Detective, how it might be different to the Deckscape line. Depending upon how many players you've got, you have a hand of cards. On your turn, you can play or archive those cards. Now, in order to archive, you're building up an archive which starts at a level of one, and every card you put face down, you add to the archive. The reason we do that is because every card has an archive power on it, and you have to have an archive of that level before you can play it. So if my card's got an archive level five, there has to be at least five cards in the archives, which we can't look at anymore, in order for me to play that card onto the table for everyone else to see it. For cards you've archived and cards in your hand, the only thing you'd add to say about them is their title, which is in red, you can tell what the title is, and that's all other people have to go on when you're discussing what you should or should not play. Once you've gone through and played all your cards and your hands are empty, you're then gonna get a series of multiple choice questions which you use red paper clips to mark your answers so you can't cheat and change halfway through. And then for each question, you flip them over and you see how many you've got right and you're gonna score points out of 10 for your group attempt to solve the mystery of the death of Count Ferdinand Judah. It's a mix. Okay. We have played something very, very similar to this system, the Enigma system, which came from GDM last year, the Sherlock Holmes games, with the same idea that you get a hand of cards, you play them face down or face up. In that, it wasn't as structured as the archive system, and you can play any card down. There was no minimum value in that, so they've changed that structure to it. It didn't have the 3D scene in the old one, but... The general playoff, you play clues to the table or you put them face down and you have to put a certain number face down or you won't win. That is very, very similar. The point score at the end was slightly different and not quite as straightforward as this one. So, a new system, but definitely very similar to one we played before. Initial thoughts on Bloody Red Roses. I definitely enjoyed it. I, again, enjoyed Sherlock as well. I love that the cards were in the 3D setting in the box and I like that that changed throughout the game as we gained different clues and as we reached what are called plot twists which were face-up story point cards in the deck. I really like the archiving mechanism because it actually forced you to put down certain cards which meant you weren't revealing things too early so that uh, everybody was forced to, to try and go through, the, go through the story effectively. It's telling a story and you're having to make decisions. I really want to put a card down, but you know what? I'm going to have to throw one away because the archive isn't big enough for me to put these cards down. I actually really thought that was good. It definitely scripted the system much more than Enigma because by having an archive card of eight, you know you're not going to get to play that for a long time. So do you clog up your hand or do you just keep going? In fact, with more than four players, you have a very small hand size. You're actually forced to throw certain cards away. I wonder in that case, would it be too scripted? Because you and you I definitely mm. can't play that for a long time. So they're definitely leading you down a path, and with the way those plot points led you through the story and revealed new information, and then you go, "All right, this is now important, and I can probably forget about these cards." And the fact that multiple choice questions at the end really led you through. I felt like this was much more for again a family situation. The Enigma system. We were lost sometimes. What was going on? And there was a lot going on. And you were looking at each other going, I go, and you're having to pull threads together that weren't obvious. In this one, there were some nice touches. We had to join bits together, but a lot of it was actually quite boldly stated. And yeah. it went, once we started chatting about what we all knew, 
We scored nine out of ten, which that, for us yes, is. That was... I was going to say, I thought either we played extremely well, mm, yeah. <laughs> or um, it was possibly a little bit obvious. But that again is probably because we played so often, and I think this is a really great starter game for people who are interested in, you know, trying a new game and trying something for the family. I agree with Rachel that maybe it was a bit simple because we had it solved, and then we thought maybe. It can't be this simple. And we came up with a whole alternative thing. In fairness, I sat there looking at exactly the same clues as you lot and came up with an entirely alternative story, which was completely wrong. And it had In every way. Yeah, yeah it was, you couldn't have been much more wrong. But so it couldn't have been valid. Like, there was nothing saying that it wasn't the hat. Apart there, from there the kind of was. <laughs> I kind of ignored a couple of things here and there. I like to think I was quite the expert on the garden, though. Select. Apart from, you know, that big huge thing that I missed <laughs> let's not talk about that anymore yeah. right so in these two things you've got Deckscape and Detective they're coming from the same company they're going down slightly different paths are they different enough would you have a recommendation for someone if they're going to play with their family which of these two would you go for because I don't think you'd get these to play with gamers either of them but in particular yeah so if they're getting family gaming bunch of you know around the table would you go with Detective or Deckscape which would be your preference I think I'd go with either, to be honest. They're very different games in terms of one's an escape room and one is a detection thing. So they are quite different. And, and someone could happily play both. <laughs> <laughs> and I also think, I don't agree that gamers wouldn't necessarily pick this because gamers have young families. And if you want to try and bring your family into gaming, then this is yeah, a game I mean, something you, you can do. Choose it just for a group of gamers. No, no that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying gamers can't have families. <laughs> It sounded it like that, honey. This is not a... <laughs> I mean, some of them. Okay. <laughs> what? Fine. Anyway, Eleanor, Rachel refuses to choose. <laughs> uh, for a game or with a family, I would say Detective, just because it's it's more simple to play with a young family. But if it was a family with children our age, as in 13 and 16, Deckscape, because it's just more challenging. Very nice. I agree with Eleanor and I frown at Rachel for refusing to choose. <laughs> Don't grin at me, I'm not interested. <laughs> Once more I get to silence my daughter. This is one of the happiest moments of the month for it's me. It's been difficult for him. <laughs> because Rachel and I are going to talk about two-player game Watergate from Matthias Kramer and Capstone Games. It's a two-player asymmetric card game in which one player takes the role of the editor of the Washington Post and gets their own deck of cards. The other player takes the role of President Nixon and gets their own deck of cards. On each round, there are two tokens and there are a bunch of evidence chits, and they're going to be placed on a track in the middle. And the players are going to be looking to pull them to their side of the track in order to take control of them for where they get allocated at the end of each round. Now, there's evidence chits, they start face down. The editor player is trying to flip them face up. They'll be of one of three colours or, or a mix of some of those colours. And once they get them face up, they're trying to pull them to their side because at the end of the round, if they're on their side of the board, the editor can add them to what is a, a web in effect on the shared board. And what they're trying to do is Nixon is in the middle and there's six conspirators around the outside. And they're trying to create a chain from the conspirator to Nixon via the correct colours because each space in the web is green or blue or yellow. When Nixon takes control of an evidence chip like that and it comes over to their side of the board at the end of a round, they can put it face down to block connections within that web to make it harder for the editor. 
The other thing the editor's trying to do is to bring these conspirators into play face up because they don't start in the game. You must play cards to do that. For Nixon, he's trying to bring them in face down so that the editor has got fewer choices for the web. There's two more tokens. There's the initiative token you're trying to win. When you move that to your side, you get to draw five cards instead of four the next round and you can play first and last in the round. But there's also a momentum token you're trying to move. Now, if the editor takes the momentum token, they add it to their own little card. And once they get to three or more, they start getting special powers. When Nixon takes the momentum token, if he ever gets to five momentum, then the momentum of his election sweeps everything else away and he becomes president again. And he has an instant win in the game. The way you move these tokens back and forth is each of these cards has got a power and a color on there, maybe one or two colors. For example, if I had a three green card, I can move green chips a total of three moves towards my side of the board, be it one, two or three of them, depending on how many are in play. You can also move tokens with each of those. However, each card also has a power on there or an event. And when you play a card for an event, it's a one-off and it goes out of the game completely. However, you get people that you play and their powers will reoccur and they'll come back round through your small deck again and again. And, and they will just do what the things I've just described, some version of them. It might flip chips that are in play or put chips in play or add an extra one or take one off or suddenly move the momentum really quickly. You can imagine the type of things that powers would be in this game. And we play through until Nixon is connected to two conspirators or Nixon has gained that five momentum and one. Rachel, head-to-head -head asymmetric card game. Initial thoughts on Watergate. Frustrating, but pretty addictive <laughs> not won it yet but i think it's a really clever very different two-player board game in terms of it being different is it the theme that goes into that do you care about the theme specifically or is it in general is it feeling thematic for you the whole lot but it's quite thematically different the board is just very clever and the mechanism is really works as well it's just everything is quite different to any other two-player games i think we've got have you any interest in the Watergate story or any background knowledge to it or does that make it any <laughs> Not better? a huge amount. <laughs> <laughs> so specifically for the Watergate theme, you don't particularly, not particularly fast. No. Right. In general, does it feel like there's someone who's shady, who's trying to avoid getting information out and there's an editor who's looking to get information into play and is being stimmied by nasty play? Yeah, I do feel that it, it is incredibly thematic. It feels like... I've never won this game. I've played it with you a few times and I've never won it. So I feel that the actual game lends itself slightly more powerfully towards Nixon, which makes sense because he's a president. <laughs> you won't let me play as the editor. Because I'm going to win! <laughs> in all asymmetric games like this, Rachel chooses a side and then it's like an prying her away from that side <laughs> to face both sides. So I can only give you half a review because I've only ever been made nasty Richard Nixon. <laughs> And you seem to be suggesting that I'm good at playing a, an underhand, nasty, overbearing person. Which I would never suggest such a thing, honey. I think the evidence speaks for itself. Thank you very much. I think as someone who hasn't played this and as kind of a history buff, the Watergate theme is particularly what's drawing me in. Because, I mean, I like a good two-player game, but I don't particularly enjoy asymmetric two-player games. So I think, yeah, the Watergate theme is what's drawing me in. There's, there's one card that annoys the hell out of me. Go on. That's your card that then throws away all my cards. Oh, when yeah. I might have a wonderful plan. I might be one card in and have four cards left and you use that bloody card that gets rid of all my cards. 
It's very so funny. annoying. It is very particularly funny. if you've got all your really good cards out. <laughs> that is more or less looking at your face and judging how smirky you are and how your eyes have lit up and you're thinking I can do something special this round. I'm like, I'll play this for the event then. <laughs> bad, bad. With presidential person. <laughs> With a card like that, what I think is very clever is that that card has got powerful moves on there. So I can grab that momentum token and move it four spaces and retain that move because that's about the maximum power you can get is four. Mm. Retain that card in my deck. But as soon as I use it for that event, which can be very powerful, if I've got a bad hand of cards, I can't play it as my first card, I can play it as my second card on turn. Boom, this round is over. You can't do anything mm. more. I'm then sacrificing that away. And there's a lot of cards where I feel like I want to do this event. Is this the right time? And timing is massively important. And there have been times when... I've hit you with all those events early because I felt like I was really building up and getting at it and then I'm clawing in the end to grab that last momentum token and there's other times where I've really sat back and and just used the power and nibbled because you're not revealing your big guns so I'm not going to reveal my big guns and it's much more sneaky and the game has different ebbs yeah. and flows to it. It really does. It, it changes constantly. <laughs> it's, you're not playing the same game every time. You're playing a completely different strategy each time. You just don't know... You're feeding off each other all the time as well. You certainly are. And just you saying that about my card, the decks are not massive. And we're starting to learn the decks and starting to kind of judge what's coming out and be aware of, oh, I've got that one. I haven't played it yet. I wonder if that's going to come up. And that also is feeding into repeated plays. I am enjoying it more after a few plays than I did in the first play. And I'm not getting bored of it in any way. I'm looking forward to playing more and trying different things and maybe one day getting playing playing the editor. I mean, Once I've won. <laughs> right, let you win, got that. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to, even if I tried to, I couldn't let you win. It would too hurt me too much. Because you're a bad person. Oh, I can live with that. Okay. So both impressed with Watergate? Yeah, very much both so. Both looking forward to more plays moving forward. Right, the last game that we're going to give you in this part of the show is Rorik, Dawn of Kiev, from Stan Kodonsky and Peacekeeper Games. In Rorik, each of the players is a child of Vlad the Great in 11th century Ukrainian Rus, and we are looking to impress the other nobles in order to take charge of the land. We're going to do that by crushing rebellions, controlling the different areas of the land, trading in goods, and building up some infrastructure. Everyone starts the game with four what we'll call workers but aren't really workers that have got values of one to five. In order to choose actions in the strategy phase of the game, you're going to bid on these columns. There are five different columns of actions and you place one of your workers in a column. As subsequent workers get played, if they're of a higher value than the worker already in a column, they will push that worker down to a less powerful version of the action that you've chosen until those columns fill up. But when you place these workers, you can put money on them in order to be a bribe so that you can make your one, for example, worth five if you put four coins with it. The key to that then is, though, all the lowest value numbers are going to trigger first. You get to do first moves on the board. So all the ones will go, then all the twos, then all the threes. Now, you start with four workers. Over the course of the four rounds, you're going to get two more workers. So you end up with six in the end. So what are you looking to do? You can muster troops to bring more troops onto the board where you already have a presence. You can then move those troops. There are different sectors around the board. Mostly the only difference in the sectors is that they give you different trade goods, which leads on to you can trade. <laughs> and when you trade, you just take the good that that area produces. Now, there's a key thing in control here is the first time control comes into play. 
whoever's got the most soldiers in an area controls the area and building and trading is cheaper for them you can sneak in underneath someone else and nick something from somewhere they control even if you've only got one soldier in there but it will cost you two trade things instead of one and where you are on the column will tell you how many trade actions you have how many muster actions you have so your five might be at the top you can muster three times your two might be near the bottom you can only muster once and get one troop into play you can attack now that it starts with rebels on the board you can attack those rebels and take them and you can get a bonus for having done so but you can also attack each other but whenever you attack it's an instant you remove one troop then you flip cards from a deck depending upon what situation you're attacking in it's one two or three cards that you're flipping over and if any of them show a casualty then you will also lose one troop but never more than one troop so zero sum there's no dice rolling or anything like that the last thing you can do is build you can put three different types of buildings into play you can put in churches which will convert an enemy unit into one of your units you can put in markets which mean when you do that trade action you take two of the goods rather than one or you can put in a fortress to defend and that's one of the ways in which the attacker would have to flip extra cards see if they get a casualty and also will give you more power for control of an area when you do trade for these goods you put them into a boat or you use them for schemes because the last action you can do is take first player and or take scheme cards and they often ask you to hand things in in order to score a point or two at the end of the game and to get some immediate bonus like you can hand in trade goods or hand in troops or do whatever it might be. Once everyone's taken all their actions we're going to do some VP checking because there's different ways in which you score points. You check and see how many regions you control. Now, if you control two, three, or five, or seven regions, you move up a track. Now, you only have to do this once in the course of the four rounds. So if I control five regions, my mark will go up to that at the end of the round. If in the subsequent rounds I control one region, doesn't matter, I will stick on five regions because that was my high point during the course of the game. You do similarly for contiguous reasons you've built in, that your buildings are next to each other because each area can only hold one building. And the last thing you do is you check how many trade goods you've got in your boats. So you can get them in and use them to score immediately or you can stockpile them and there are different columns of different goods. And by filling in those columns, you'll both earn money each round and also by having lots of goods in your boat, you'll score victory points at the end of the game. Finally, there's a military track and every time you successfully attack another player, you will move up that military track and that will give you a couple of points of your highest up at the end of the game couple of other things there are to do you've got leaders everyone has got a unique power with their own little mini which does something special for them and there's eight of them in there and there are objective cards that you get at the beginning of the game which will score you a handful of points for having done whatever it may be trading or building or being in certain areas whatever it is they will give you points now this comes in the most incredible game tray situation holding it together in the box but in, other than that, that's just amazing. The <laughs> initial impressions for Rurik. I enjoyed it. I felt like trade was a bit overpowered. So you had to go and do the trade to get the money to be able to then go and do other things, which meant you were forced to invade other areas to be able to get all the trade goods. But generally, it was a good, enjoyable game. And the quality of the pieces themselves was high. So this game about controlling different areas forced you to yes. invade and you couldn't just turtle up and be successful no well, that sounds very it's brutal cool. <laughs> well, for the fact that trade was apparently overpowered I completely forgot that it was a big yes. game and just forgot to do it and that's I think what scuppered me there this is another of these games you were where... all about the invasions yeah <laughs> Another of these games where I looked like I was doing very well and then it came to point scoring and they both went ah oh, you 
weren't doing that well, were you? It was, if you looked at the map, you looked like you were doing really well. There was more white troops out. You were controlling areas. You built things. It was like, wow, wow, you got... But then every time we looked at the action columns, <laughs> all, even your fives, were like last or second last in a column. And then look, ah, that's amazing. Considering she was frequently first player. Yeah, always first player, more or less, the whole game. It's because she had no money from no trade. She had no trade, so she didn't get the money, which then allowed her scheme cards. to put... Yeah. Put I think also on. being first is a dual-edged sword because you're right, you get to do your actions first, but... People then can see exactly what you've been. And exactly. you put your four in, all right, I'll put my four with one coin becomes a five, I automatically outbid you. So uh, there's a lot of things in the game that I felt were, oh, it's good that way, but it's bad that way. Yeah. And there were not necessarily lots of obvious choices. I actually really liked that people thing as well. The meeple had different values to them and you had to really think about and plan what order you were going to put them down in. I really liked that. I thought that, that was, was very clever. Yeah. The best part of the game. Oh yeah, it was it was so clever, and I also always completely forgot my, that my one would have to go first. I've moved without mustering. Yes, oh, no. times, times Ronan did that as well. And how many times did I tell you when I was teaching it <laughs> that we're gonna do this? You're gonna kick yourself, and then I did it more than anyone else. I went no, no. <laughs> Numbers are very hard, and they went all the way from one to five, and that is difficult for and me. And it was several twos and threes. <laughs> There was too many numbers. Yeah, that action selection is the point at which we were looking at the board and getting Euro brain and freezing up and going, oh, I don't want to spend that coin because no. I need it, but I have to spend it to It was bribe. really clever. And, and if you got pushed down, sometimes you couldn't afford to take some of the actions you actually planned yeah. because you had to pay for them. Yeah. And it was just not feasible. I paid... <laughs> I paid three at some point for an action that ended up second from the bottom and I had to pay a coin to do it anyway. Uh, and that three ended up being useless because the only one below you yeah. was not in it anyway. That was really funny. Thanks. <laughs> that then, that fantastic action selection and they outbidding each other and the visionless going onto the map, did it flow in and was the gameplay on the map as exciting as that bidding for the actions? I thought it was, especially with um, Rachel's special power where she could move other people's troops into different places and sow a bit of discord and I really liked that and I liked watching you two skirmish at the bottom of the board while I kind of took, took over, over the, the rest of the board. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I felt I actually enjoyed the putting the little meeple down more D- yeah. than actually yeah, doing yeah. the board and, and trying to put my buildings up I guess was uh, I'm not much of a fighty person but I, actually what I did enjoy was that you weren't going to lose too many people when you went to went to war I actually quite liked that and there was only chance that you would lose them as well because it was about flipping no no only chance for you because you were the one doing the attacking we always lost them because we were the defenders <laughs> The map play, I think, one thing I liked about it was quite fluid because people didn't have enough troops. Like the, the muster is, was limited. You weren't getting bunches of five and six in an area because A, that wasn't didn't make sense for scoring points. You had to spread out to get different areas. Didn't make sense for getting trade. And, and you just couldn't get that many troops on the board. So things were fluid a lot. There were very few areas that stayed under control, apart from Rachel trying to Euro up and turtle in the middle <laughs> and just build buildings and create a Euro engine. Isn't that, isn't, that isn't this game. I want that. That's what I do. <laughs> okay. But I like the fact that we were flowing around and lots of areas were in flux and not locked down all the way through the game. I mean, there's only four rounds as well, so that also adds to it. That is very... You have to so grab So quick. Things. But what... That leads me into is in the scoring. So, like, I love the action selection. The map was fun. The scoring, I didn't like that much because 
I felt like, if, you know, let's say I went for train, I was trying to fill up my boat. That took me all four rounds. And that's the only thing I did. And when I started doing it on round one, I had to carry on doing it to get to round four. Otherwise, I wasn't going to get to the end of it. If you wanted to score for having lots of buildings and continuous areas, you had to start that in round one and you had to keep going it's at it and carry thing. on through. There yeah. was no way to have all round scoring because it wasn't, it no. didn't go for long enough. And you couldn't switch track. It seemed to be controlling lots of areas was much harder than the other scoring. So, and the fact the scoring was very limited, it's like you score one point here, three points here, five points here, seven points here, lent to similar scores to each other. Mm -hmm. Now, part of that was, I think, Rachel and I really didn't exploit the scheme cards at all. No. We were far too busy building up troops and punching each other in the face and trying to, like, <laughs> basically being mean to each other in the South while Ellie had free <laughs> Side though, I spent too much time on scheme cards and did not pay attention to those score tracks pretty much at all. Yeah, that would be a bad idea because yeah. that's how you score points. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I did swear, at the end that. of round four, I thought there was another round. <laughs> that also is true, which made me laugh. Um, <laughs> so it, it kind of, each round gave me diminishing returns in that I'd be like, yes, this bidding for actions. Okay, that play on the map. Oh yeah, whatever scoring. Yes, back to the bit of reactions again. So I love that. I wish it was tied to a slightly cleverer scoring system. So any final thoughts from you guys on Rorik? There was only one other tiny criticism I have, which was the trade goods on the board. I wish they had a flip over so you could flip them over and the other shy side showed that it had been used rather than keep taking them off the map and putting them back on the map. Yeah, I agree. That is a tiny thing. That is a tiny like thing, it. but it was quite Details annoying. are important. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I really enjoyed the game. I thought it was, it was a good game. I, I completely agree with your, your comments on putting the meeple down and then the map not being quite as good as the actual meeple thing. But I, I did enjoy the game. That could talk to our preferences as gamers that we all prefer Euro games because mm. that was a more Euro mechanism. Whereas, you know, dudes on boards... I quite, I, yeah, you like some dudes and boards games. Like, you like love Chaos in the Old World and stuff yeah, like that. That just seems to be an exception to me. I do love that game. Yeah. Well, I think it's just because you like being evil. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a bad person. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Maybe maybe it talks our preferences, but maybe it, it's just not as good, which is what I think, really. <laughs> right. When I went into this, I wasn't sure, but as we talked beforehand, we enjoyed all nine games to yeah. greater or lesser degree, which means that we haven't really given people an idea of what they should or should not be purchasing or spending their money on ideas. So we're going to come up with a top three for our recommendations from these nine, which we say they're all good, they're all worth a play. Obviously, everyone's got limited space and budget. If you're going to buy three, these are the three to go for, or play, or playtest, whatever it might be. Eleanor, your number three recommendation from this show. My number three is Rurik, because... I really would like to play it again and try and improve on what I did wrong because I see how clever it was and all of that and I just want to get better. For me, it would be Watergate. It's a very different two-player game and I really enjoyed it. Mine would be Castello Mathoni because I think there's more to explore there in making small areas that you want to get bought up or making lots of areas or going for the one big huge area and the fact it's so interactive and so quick i can just see it being played again and again and again so that would be my number three recommendation my number two is taverns of tiefenthal that was hard to say but yeah i again i really enjoyed deck builders i enjoyed all the upgrades all the different types of things you can get in the dice drafting was really fun as well, well spoiler i haven't put in taverns of tiefenthal 
The only reason being is I haven't played the whole game in the box. So it's one that we're going to have to come back round again with Sean or whatever or later on. Once I've played through all the modules and give a final answer on for that base game, it wouldn't make my top three. But that's not the only thing you get in the box. So I need to revisit it. That is my number two as well, Tavern's Different Tile. Well, then I came in too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> because I really enjoyed it. I think it's really clever and I see it's got a lot of potential. Absolutely. Okay, my number two is Barrage. Despite, and in fact, to be honest, I don't really get too invested in my Kickstarters that I back, but I did back this. I understand people's frustration. I understand they haven't dealt with the campaign very well. Once you get the game on the table, all that stuff is periphery then. And just in judging the gameplay itself, I've had a ton of fun. Very tight, very mean. Lots of going, ah, why can't I just have one more coin in order to do the one thing I need to do? Or can I just have one, can I borrow a worker, please? Because I just can't do the thing and that's going to mess everything up. And I love that tightness. It does feel like sort of an old-fashioned Euro in that it's quite simple and the layout is all there and it's quite simple actions. It's your choices that dictate how you're going to go. So I'm very much enjoying Barrage. So Ellie, your number one recommendation. My number one recommendation is Castello Mathoni because I really enjoyed it like, like Dad said when he put it as number three, I can see it coming out again and again. I'm definitely going to request it again soon. And yeah, again, another one that I want to get better at. I feel like it would be rewarding to get better at. For me, it will obviously be Barrage. I love a heavy Euro. It's everything I want. It's lots of options. It's lots of alternative way of doing things. And it's, I know other people will say it's not, but I think it's very pretty. <laughs> I'm glad that you see things alternatively pretty. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> President Nixon. <laughs> I can be the editor, damn you. Speaking of which, my number one is Watergate. It's just 25, 30 minutes, but it is pure tension. It's headache. It's why have you done that? Oh, I can't believe you played that card right now. It's spitting feathers at each other and coming down to a really clever system. And I just think it oozes theme not necessarily specific to watergate but specific to the cat and mouse of trying to uncover things and put together coherent investigation and then the other person just being mean and trying to block at every stage and the frustration the editor feels whereas the tension the president feels of being like oh no they're gonna catch me this time i've, I've run out of rat holes to bolt down so i'm absolutely loving watergate so we recommended their taverns of teeth and tile Castello Mathoni, Barrage and Watergate all came out more than once with a little cherry of Rurik on top for the fact that I think mostly for that action selection, which is yeah, amazing. Definitely. Okay. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to have a tiny break. And next up, you're going to hear Chris and Isaac having a chat at PAX East. Enjoy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're here at PAX West uh, 2019 to show off Gloomhaven, not only Gloomhaven the board game, which is an exceptional thing, but also the, the video game as well. But before we delve into that, can you talk a little bit, probably asked this a thousand times, but just a little bit about the germ of the idea and the mere fact that you would comprehend someone or some people replaying ultimately the same game. How does that, how did, how did you? that sort of come about, the concept of Gloomhaven? Well, yeah, so I come from a background of, of Dungeons and Dragons. Played a lot of that in my childhood and not childhood. And also just playing other uh, dungeon crawl board games, you know, like Descent and, and things like that. I really like that genre. I really love 
you know, just killing monsters and running around with your sword and chopping things up and casting fireballs and things like that. But I don't know, I, I didn't like just how dependent on randomness those games are, where, you know, you just... You know, I, I cast a fireball and I, I roll some dice and see how much damage it does. You know, I wanted a dungeon crawl game that I, I wanted to play, you know, that would focus more on, like, decision-making and then less on, on the sort of randomness as, aspects. So, yeah, I just sat down and decided to, to make my own dungeon crawl game and uh, it sort of just ballooned from there. But, yeah, I, I knew all along that I wanted it to, like, feel like a D&D campaign. You know, where you've got, like, this whole big world that you can explore, and so you sort of start off, you're given this quest, but then you can sort of forge your own path from there. You know, so there's lots of decision trees and, you know, lots of different paths you can go down. In order to implement that, like, in a board game, you got to have a lot of a lot of content, depending on, on your players, to, to sit down and play it over and over and over again. So then you got to make sure that the interest is there, you know, that that people will want to play it over and over and over again. That it's not repetitive, it's not just going to do the same thing every time. So, you know, implemented, like, the retirement system so people have to retire their characters and start something new. Like, they're, you're forcing them to refresh the game over and over so it's like they're doing something new every time. I want to ask this question about leading on from the, the tactical, the, the less of the randomness, the mercy of just random... It's like, wait, I rolled a one and it all, you know, didn't work out for you. Oh, well. Yeah. I want to ask about the card design and the actions. The fact that you've got two actions, top and bottom. And when you were designing that, which is a wonderful system, and the amount of times I have to explain to new players or teaching, no, no, just one or the other, top or bottom, just either of those. It's some reasons are complex to, to, to deal with. <laughs> have you found when you're designing those actions, designing those cards, did you find that you were worried that you were reducing the option space of the player at any time? No, I mean, I always felt like I was I was expanding the option set, right? I mean, you look at something like Descent, I mean, everything you do is just the same thing over and over, you know? It's just like you attack, you attack. You get, like, one special ability that you can use once per scenario, and that's it. But uh, with Gloomhaven, I really wanted to make it feel like every action that you take is a special ability. Right, so yeah, I mean, you've got plenty of options on your, on your cards. Uh, I'm not sure how you could have more options than you already have. No, indeed. This is something I find some people like, oh, but I just want to hit the thing. Well, actually, how does that help me? Because it kind of leads me on to the next point, is that yeah. because you are working as a team, yeah. and, and the, the interaction with all the players is vital. Uh, it's not really understood initially, because in other games that you mentioned, Descent and similar sort of dungeon crawlers, Although there's a corporate development, it's nowhere near as embedded as it is with Gloomhaven, if I may say. And as you get better at it, when you understand what the other players can do, yeah. how have you found with all the genome, all the characters you created, and all the we talk about there's many different sort of characters and character classes you can create, how have you found the balance mechanism, if indeed you've had to, to make sure that the game still remains challenging and you don't have someone hanging on to that one character because well, they're just awesome. I just started with, you know, the base system, four characters running through the same, you know, starting scenario, and sort of balanced that, but then also, like, came up with a system for designing new scenarios where it's all, you know, each monster that you include in the scenario has some numerical value, right? So you just sort of add that many number of monsters, and then, you know, it should be fairly balanced compared to other scenarios. Then, you know, you still play test, obviously, and then sort of tweak it as you go. 
Uh, and yeah, the different characters, you know, there is some power fluctuation. They're not, they're not all perfectly balanced, but I feel like, yeah, they're all interesting and they're all still pose a challenge to sort of mastering them and playing them well. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's just some metrics that I use. It's, it's kind of hard to like describe in words, you know, but I can just like look at an ability and say like, oh no, that's a little too strong or a little too weak. Let's tweak a few numbers here and there. Uh, yeah, and then again, just playtesting them from there and, you know, just getting the feel for them and seeing how it goes. It's a tough question to ask, and it's got a little bit nebulous, and I apologize for that, but ultimately what I'm getting at is, you know, how have you managed to actually marry all these different characters? Because it could be played in any combination. You're going to have some players who are going, I'm not going to retire, or I can't retire them yet because they haven't completed their mission. I know you can't do it beforehand, but a lot of players, including myself, hung on for dear life until they could actually create, oh, unlock a next character because that was their, the next in their own personal yeah. character storyline. Yeah. And I had a particular requirement which was like, this is going to take a while. <laughs> and <laughs> But, um, you know, it's just really understanding how those are marrying together. Now, very recently an expansion came out. I would love you to talk a little bit about that, what that brings to the game. What is the expansion? First of all, what is it called? And what, what, what does it bring to the game? Yeah, so the expansion Forgotten Circles came out, uh, you know, two or three months ago, I think. And it's sort of a continuation of the campaign from the original game. So there's about 20 new scenarios that sort of pick up where the story left off in the, in the original game. So those are meant to be played, you know, once you've completed Scenario 51, which is sort of the official ends of the campaign. Uh, but also brings a new character class, the Diviner. Who's very interesting, you know, she doesn't have really any damage capability much at all, but she's just very support-based, you know, sort of messing with the monsters and making sure that the players don't get attacked very often or get into the right position or... or... She can also, like, look ahead to into the monster ability cards to see what they're going to be doing next turn so you can plan better. So there's a lot of really interesting versatility with that character. That was that character was designed uh, by Marcel Svartetska. Oh, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. That he, so he designed the whole expansion. So he's the one who sort of sat down and balanced those character that character. So I can't really speak too well on that. I mean, you know, I play tested it obviously and felt like it was it was pretty good. I didn't really tweak it much at all for based on his design. Yeah, I do have my own copy, and it's it's really. I mean, I got it as soon as I oh, actually, more more stuff, more stuff. More, more yeah. stuff. One of the things that sort of it's always sort of uh, intrigued me is it's the world that you created with Gloomhaven. It's not what you think because initially you think, oh, it's just this, this, you know, a high fantasy medieval world, but yeah. but it isn't, is it? There's technology there. There's people using things, and can you tell us a little bit where it all comes from. If there's any inspirations drawn from, because it's not a lot of people talk about the world of Gloomhaven. Nearly there's enough. I mean, I've played Founders as well. Yeah. Fantastic games. Thanks for making this. It's a really different experience. But, you know, the founding of Gloomhaven itself. So tell us a little bit about the backstory, if you like. So I think not a lot of people talk about it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, just something that I thought it would be interesting. I, I would say I've never really thought about it before, but now that you bring it up, like, the whole technology aspect, I feel like it was kind of inspired by uh, the Fantasy Star series of, of RPGs, the, like, old Sega Genesis games that I played a lot. Um, so now, yeah, those probably had some influence on <laughs> On the, on the world as well. It's sort of like this advanced, like, space-traveling world. It's like a solar system. But then at some point, like, this catastrophe happens and, like, everybody, like, kind of goes back to the Dark Ages, almost. And so it's got, it's got like, some high fantasy stuff in there, but also, like, there's, you, you know, ruins of, like, this technology that 
no one really knows about. So yeah, I have sort of those under undertones as well. That's a little more muted in, in, in Gloomhaven. Like you don't really encounter it too much. But yeah, there's sort of hints of like this ancient civilization that sort of got destroyed somehow in the past. And now you're sort of rebuilding. One of the things I noticed we did talk about is a co-op game. And I'm jumping around a bit, but it's, it's a deliberate sort of thread of thought. One of the things I just love about Gloomhaven, I sort of upset it to people, especially people, new players, is that the concept of quarterbacking, the idea of some dominant player saying, you do this, you do that, you do this. How much time did you spend countering that? Because there's a lot of mechanics there that both obvious and subtle that prevent yeah. that from happening. Yeah, that, I mean, so yeah, first of all, that was a huge issue for me. Like, I definitely wanted to focus on that in the, in the design and make sure that that sort of quarterbacking like was curbed as much as possible. Played other cooperative games like Robinson Crusoe. Like it's a great game, but but I mean one person can play it. It's a solo game essentially. <laughs> so yeah, I mean I think the the main thing I did you know is just have each player have their own hand of cards, right? And so you have the information on what you can do and you know what you're capable of. And sure, yeah, as you play with other people they can sort of learn what what abilities you have but it's really hard to like track you know as you play like which cards you have left in your hands and then there's just that whole simultaneous action selection which i think is very important so when you're deciding what you want to do in the round so everyone else is doing the same thing and they're focusing on their own character and it's very hard to track all that information and figure out well yeah okay i you i need you to play those two abilities right now so that i can do like it's there's just too much information going on it's sort of similar to like Spirit Island, where like technically you were like really great at the game and you knew every single card in the game, then maybe you could quarterback, but like there's too much stuff going on for you to do that well. You really just focus on your own character and yeah, you can still communicate with everyone else about what they're doing, but it's more just like in general terms, like, oh I really need somebody to kill that enemy over there if you can do that. I think there's two other things, is the fact that you can say when you're going. Like, oh yeah. I'm gonna go yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go a little bit cards. late. Are you? Right. Okay. And was yeah. what? Are you gonna go over there, pointing at a doorway or like a bit of rubble or something? I'm gonna move over there, and that's quite. I can generate a lot of arguments. I found it was like, why, why, why are you open the door? Just need to open the door. Why, why you're squishy? Why are you? You don't open the door. I just need to open the door. And this leads to basically the last thing about yeah. the little mini quest that each character yeah. has. Was that also part of the quarterbacking thing? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to give give a little like variability to the to the scenarios, and also yeah, just add a little more hidden information. People might have motives that you're not aware of, right? Like, you know, you go into a dungeon, and the objective is kill all monsters. So you're like, okay, let's kill all the monsters, but someone else might want to do something else in addition to that, and you just it, you know just throws a little wrench in the works. I think it's what's also very important is sort of the experience and, and, and money system as well, right? So, like, you'll have people maximizing, like, how much money they grab off the ground or, like, how much experience they get from playing abilities, and that might not optimize, like, how they're playing, right? They might play subpar so that they can get more gold. There's that one clear objective of the scenario, but there's all these other objectives that might also be in play, and you can get away with that in a campaign game because those sort of micro goals that you're trying to achieve will carry forward like more the more money you get means you can buy better equipment for the next time you play you know as opposed to something like uh, dead of winter where you know it's just a single single game so you either win or you lose right those are your only two options whereas this it's like i can i can win but if i get more 
gold and I still win, then I'll be better off than if I get less gold and I win. So I think, last question, I think, we'll, we'll sign off with this one, maybe the two, but I want to ask about the item gathering. Now, I can item, the acquisition of stuff. Yeah. It's quite unique. It's actually the, the economy in Gloomhaven is quite aggressive. Most of the items you'd like or get uh, are quite expensive. You have to really work quite hard to actually acquire things. Yeah. Could you tell us how the economy was designed and why is it like that? I think you've given a hint already, but yeah, tell us, yeah. well, how did you design that economy? It's just balanced around playing it a lot, right? You don't want to play one scenario and then have enough money to buy whatever equipment you want. The whole game is based around this very like incremental long-term progress because you've got a lot of games to get through, so you got to keep it interesting. So yeah, it's, it's kind of just designed around like each time you complete a scenario, you'll get something new. But, it, you know, it may be an item or it may just be like a perk because you finally got three check marks or maybe because you leveled up and now you can get a new ability. And then, you know, that means that like next time you play, you'll have like one new thing to try out. It'll be a little bit different. And then you can get that next thing the next time you play. Incremental progress to like keep people interested as, as they play through this whole huge campaign. Yeah, because for me, a dungeon crawler has always been ultimately the quest for truth, justice and better stuff. Yeah. Not in that order. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, Gloomhaven does a lot of that. It dangles a lot of carrots in front of you, but it then says, that's okay, but unfortunately, well, I say fortunately, often it really, you've got to work hard to get that. And the economy is such that it's it's quite balanced against you, but not to the point where it becomes impossible. Right. It's always tangible, because it yeah. can go either way. Like you say, you can even throw money at the players, and then it, it, anything seems to have any value. Right. Or you can actually say, you know, if you want money, first of all, you have to go grab it. Yeah. That's something we haven't mentioned. <laughs> is that monsters, you know, they don't spew out loads of gold and you just automatically collect it. Oh no, you got to actually move there. And um, that's quite an interesting thing is that positioning and the fact that the opening of chests and the gathering of gold is something that players can actually fight over a little bit. Somehow there's been four coins laying on that. And that's a lot of money. Yeah. And people yeah. will actually try to <laughs> dive for that. Well, what have, what have you done to actually balance the game to make it so that the player who fails to get that or the player who don't get to the chest, they're still engaged and they still have an investment in the game? Uh, yeah, that's a good question because, yeah, there obviously can be, like, negative feelings associated with that. But, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a cooperative game, right? And so you can just sort of feel good for your, your, you know, your friend that he got all that gold and he can buy something new. And that'll help you out in the long run. And then ultimately, you know, you're going to retire, and that he's going to retire, and you're going to have to start over anyway. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. It's, there's, there's lots of things to add to it. Is you may not have won out this time, but the team did, right? And the, the progress has been made. Yeah. So don't worry about it. It's all right. Yeah. You know, you, you'll 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 do fine. Eventually, you'll get the chest. Well, Isaac, thanks very much. You're welcome. So there you have it, a slightly different episode for you this time round. My thanks to Rachel and to Eleanor and to Chris and to Isaac for providing all that content. We hope we've got you suitably excited and maybe given you one or two games to have a look at from this spiel and moving onwards. 
As we have been telling you, we will be on the Dice Tower booth, Sean and I, between 4 and 6 Friday and between 12 and 2 on Saturday. And we'll be wandering the halls in our Game Pit Black Pilot shirts with Pip Crew written across the back. By all means, stop us and say hello. We'd love to say hello and meet you all. Incredibly excited now, just a couple of days ago, with just a couple of days to go until we leave. So I'm going to leave you and we'll talk to you on the other side of the Spiel Fair. This has been the Game Pit Podcast. We are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. If you want to have a chat with us, we are on Facebook and Instagram, but mostly on Twitter. We've also got a Board Game Geek Guild. If, if you want to email us, it's thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. You can catch all our episodes on Podbean, iTunes, and Stitcher. And for video coverage of some of the games that we've talked about here today and others, you can go to our YouTube channel. It's The Game Pit. And on there, we've got rules overviews and a few other formats of videos, including some giveaways of some small games. You just go there and you can get free games. Just make comments. I always ask a stupid question like, what would be the name of your spaceship? If it was the fastest spaceship in the galaxy, if you wish to win a copy of Astro Drive. We've got a couple running at the moment and more will be coming up as we get round to them. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Game Pits. Music by E. Aaron. Boy.